Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Today's episode is brought to you by Madison Reed. Madison Reed is salon quality hair color with an authentic poisonal touch. Madison Reed brings the prestige of a pampered salon experience to the time-saving and money-saving convenience of your own house. Made with ingredients you can feel great about, Madison Reed is the first ever six-free permanent hair color, free of ammonia, parabens, Resorcinol, PPD, flathates, and gluten. I feel like Toby right now. With 100% gray coverage and the support of Madison Reed expert colorists who will guide you every step of the way, you can color with total confidence with Madison Reed. Try it, love it, satisfaction and happiness guaranteed. That is the beauty of Madison Reed. You can find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. You'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the code WRITERS. Again, that's madison-reed.com, and you'll get that deal when you use the code WRITERS. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, some big news in the continuing quest for a conclusion in the Adnan Syed case. We'll also be talking about a new podcast that's using crime to shine a light on a part of the country most of us don't know much about. So joining me now to get that all done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Go Cubs. You're rooting for the Cubs, Or eh? Indians. I don't know. <laughs> You're neutral. I'm. I'm agnostic. I thought agnostic meant you didn't care. Well, I yes, I don't care which team wins. I'm happy for both. I'm sad, really sad for the one that loses. But having been a Boston fan, having been there, growing up, wondering is this ever going to happen before I die? Get over it. There's a statute of limitations on that. Kevin. Yeah, get over it. There's a lot of old people in Chicago who are ready to die. <laughs> and on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And I'd just like to let everyone know ahead of time, I did a big carb loading this evening. I had a big bowl of pasta, so there'll be no more hangry outbursts. Uh, if you don't Aww. swear, I'm going to be disappointed. And I think many of our listeners will be disappointed. I'm just going to throw it out there. So yeah. don't, don't okay. feel like you have to hold it back. Please don't eat before anymore. I I think you're better on your game when you're starving. When, yeah. I'm, when I'm starving. Well, I also went to a crazy class today where we had to like jump up and off of like the box thing, you know. Oh. I'm like. 
And see, this almost makes me want to swear. And now I can't even like move my legs. <laughs> so, you know, I totally violated the whole no wine during the week thing. I was like, you know what? Screw it. Um, this calls for wine. I can't move my legs, but I can bend my elbow. <laughs> I, exactly. Exactly. And also with us is our favorite team player. Of course, I'm talking about the team game of team handball. Toby Ball, he is the man who elevates skepticism to an art. Hello, Toby. Buenas noches. <laughs> <laughs> that is not what I was expecting. I was expecting maybe an aloha. What happened to that? I, I was changing it up on you. <laughs> nice, nice. little surprise. Next week. Something, something for you to look forward to. Okay. Well, I want to start the episode with some feedback we've gotten from some listeners. Uh, first of all, we've heard from a lot of people, but I'm going to attribute it on the show to Jackie from Denver who sent us an email. She wants to know if we're paying attention to another new podcast called Up and Vanished. She says that she's really enjoying it. And Jackie adds, to any tweeters who have a problem with Mr. Flynn, they have a problem with themselves because he is dynamite. Oh. That's what she said. All right. Thank you. Is it Janet? Jackie. Jackie. (laughs) Thanks, Jackie. She's recommending we listen to a podcast called Up and Vanished. Another recommendation we got this week from Melanie was Amazon's new series, Goliath, a great show about crime that seems up your alley. So I think what we have to do after the show, guys, is decide what we're going to talk about next. So will you all check those out and uh, we will... uh convene maybe perhaps by email and decide what we're going to talk about yeah sure. sure yeah yeah i also got a piece of tweet feedback from a twitterer called anxious triathlete who says what's with all the athlete hate k made a dig against triathletes and now r hates race sticker displayers <laughs> ouch <laughs> well anxious triathlete i'm just gonna say it's not you it's us yeah <laughs> It's jealousy. <laughs> it's jealousy. We we also may or may not have some just like a personal angst about triathletes, but it has nothing to do with you, I assure you. No, right? we love our dedicated athletic At, listeners. Our thin, live, yeah. muscular listeners. Actually, the more I talk about it, the more actually I do hate <laughs> It's It's envy. I mean, you know what? If they can, I, I just want to run a 5K someday and that's never going to happen. I tried Zumba last week. Zumba, old people Zumba, and I couldn't even do that. So power to the athletes. Yeah, Laura's been jumping up on boxes and I'm sure Toby's been shooting some hoops. So somebody's carrying hey, I ran full court on Sunday. Nice. Ooh. See, I don't even know what that means. Oh, oh, oh you mean you played... You didn't do like half court basketball. You had to go run yeah, up and just, down. Yeah, it was huh? five on five and just completely wow. exhausting. How did you do? How did I personally do? Yeah. Uh, I guess it was all right. We won some games. Did you dunk I'm on people about, like I'm LeBron? all about winning. You did won- I dunk on anybody? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> they don't count as much as the threes, Rebecca. That's true. Oh, he's going to drain one Ooh. from outside. Like he does on every podcast. Of course he is. Finish go for three. That's his move. We also have a couple of something that I like to call mysteries solved. Kevin, do you want to just go ahead and say that so we can add some echo? Sure. Mystery solved. Toby, this is regarding two of the Amazon items that you read last week. Of course, for any new listeners, you can go to our website, crimewriterson.com. You can buy stuff using our Amazon link. We get a little piece of the pie of your purchases. It helps us support the show. Doesn't pay our cost expenses. you anything else. No, it doesn't cost you anything else. Yeah. Anyway, Toby uh, selected some items to read last week, and two of them were a little bit mysterious. One of the mysterious items was that half-gallon bucket of massage oil. <laughs> <laughs> the good night. Turns out my suspicion was correct. The person who purchased that got in touch with us and let us know she is, in fact, a massage therapist. It is a tool Ah, of the trade. That's good. You want to know another fact? Yes. I have read, without knowing it, 
four of her purchases. <laughs> Wow. Really? Wow. One of them was like skinny jeans and then there was some t-shirt and I don't even know what the other one was because like, I, I tweeted her back and I was like, I think that's three things I've read of yours because she's tweeted at me when I've read other ones. She's like, no, actually it's four. She's like one of those ladies who like keeps winning the lottery. Oh, it's much better than winning the lottery, Kevin. <laughs> yeah. I mean like the statistics on it and, you know, Laura got yeah, it. Yeah, it's, so. it's weird because it's there, there's no way you could anticipate skinny jeans being red. Do you happen to know her Twitter handle? It's at Windy Degrees or it could be Windy Degrees. So at Windy Degrees is the listener who tweeted to us and said that she is in fact a massage therapist. This half gallon bucket of massage oil is a tool of the a trade. bucket? Jesus. I like to think of that as a bucket. As a bucket? It's like a bucket. A it's like the bucket. Danish That's health a- club. But I'm glad that the um, massage oil is being used for good and not evil. So, Toby, how do you make that selection? When, I, when you get that list and there's like a couple hundred items on it, like how do you choose which ones you're going to read? It, they fall into three categories. One is things that are just sort of legitimately kind of funny. One is things that I think are kind of funny, but maybe <laughs> not everybody does. And then things that are really difficult to pronounce. Yep. <laughs> and I just I kind of see like a whole bunch of vowels or consonants in a row. And I just, I don't look anymore, so I'm going at it fresh when I have to read it. When we first started this, you had the um, habit of choosing items that had like a long model numbers and like reading out the entire <laughs> yeah, model number. Yeah, so that, that, was a, uh, that was a trend. You know, I think it's like when anything that's industrial size, I think just seems like funny. I mean, obviously, if you use it in a, in a commercial setting and that's what she's doing, it's like makes a lot of sense. But it's like when you walk through a Sam's Club and there's like that giant thing of peanut butter. And you're like, who the <laughs> hell would ever buy that? Unless uh, they were running a summer camp. <laughs> That's exactly who would buy that, yeah. Kevin. Or I would buy that. I don't know if you've noticed the size of the peanut butters I buy and how quickly they disappear. Yeah, but but, but not like one of those drums full of peanut uh, butter. Yeah. yeah. So that's one mystery solved. What's the other? There's one other mystery to be solved. And this is from Ellen, who wrote us an email and said, Diatomaceous earth, food grade. It is used as a natural bug killer. Mm. Toby has me in stitches listening to this. You all need to go outside more. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've established that. Yeah. Get out of your closet. You pasty ass New Englanders need to go outside and see what it's like in nature. See how nature kills bugs. That's right. You know what? I saw some big nature this week. My dog scared an owl out of the woods this week. (gasps) Was it one of those big owls like we get around here? I almost just swore again. It was fucking huge. I thought it was a turkey. I was like, oh, look, Buddy scared a turkey up. And then I'm like, holy crap, that's an owl. It was humongous. Yeah, I've had them fly over my car. We have a lot of owls around here. We live sort of in a woodsy environ. In the early morning, I go to walk my dogs in this trail and owls will like sort of swoop the car. They are freaking enormous. Or as Laura would say, fucking huge. Yeah. <laughs> was. Sorry, I, I broke my promise. Don't Carry you know on. my parents are listening now? Oh, oh I'm sorry, the Flynn family. Sorry, uh, Charby. Sorry, <laughs> Sharon. <laughs> All right, let's begin the show, shall we? Do it. On Monday, attorneys for Adnan Syed filed a 28-page motion in Baltimore Circuit Court requesting the serial season one subject be released on bail pending his appeal. The motion laid out a couple of things. First, that Adnan was wrongly denied bail when he was first arrested for the murder of Haman Lee when he was 17. And interestingly, that the state's case against him has weakened significantly. Now, Kevin, I know you've read this motion fairly carefully. Mm-hmm. We should also mention it was accompanied by a 300-ish page document of supporting exhibits. Can you tell us about some of the details of this motion? Sure. And this is filed on behalf of Adnan by his attorney, Justin Brown. 
and this other high-profile defense office that has filed on pro bono. And so, you know, this is the thing people have been asking, okay, the, the conviction is vacated. Is he eligible for bail? They have filed a motion to get that process going and make the argument that he is. They clearly say that he is entitled to release under the same statutes as any newly charged defendant. So they're pointing out the fact that in the eyes of the law, it isn't that he's been a convict for 15, 17 years. Is that it's as if he were just arrested and he's entitled to those same rights. And they basically, in, in order to like make the argument that he should get bail, and the, the purpose of bail is uh, you know not only to grant someone their liberty but to ensure that they will appear in court again, make some arguments. One, they point out that he is not a danger to the community or to the victim or witnesses. They've shown that he had no history of violence before his arrest. He's been a model prisoner, you know, for the 17 years he's been locked up, no infractions, nothing violent. Whether or not he's a flight risk, you know, he doesn't have a passport, they argued, and that it was actually would be exceptionally hard for him because of the publicity generated by Serial for him to just take off and go somewhere. In fact, that, you know, he may be under even more public scrutiny, uh, uh, you know, you could probably see him in People magazine. You know, it's like Adnan Syed. He's just like us. Right. He right. goes and gets ice cream. Right. right. <laughs> um, but primarily what they're doing, one of the other arguments they, they make is you can make the case that the state's case is weak. They make a, a lot about the cell phone evidence, of course, which we've gone over. But the one thing that they do in this, they, they didn't really get a chance in the original PCR, is they attack the other leg of the state's case, which is Jay Wiles. Right. One of the things that comes out, and they hit this really hard, is the fact that Jay Wiles has had lots of run-ins with the police in the, the years subsequent to Anand's arrest. And a lot of them are for possession of marijuana, but there's other things here around domestic violence and possession of a loaded shotgun. And in one case, there was a girlfriend whom he uh, allegedly strangled to prevent her from screaming. So while that like titillates a lot of people when they're talking about, oh, well, you know, how Jay is even less credible when you're looking at the serial storyline, I think what they're doing here is not only are they making the case that Anand deserves bail, but I think they're firing the first shot at the state to say, this is what we're going to do to you on retrial and Come at me, bro. Maybe you don't want to have another trial is maybe what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I think but the state can respond to this motion if they want. They're going to have to respond to these different points, specifically Jay. And so it's going to it will force them to tip their cards. Now, before we get into some of the other specific details, and I, I really, really do want to talk about some of the response to this, especially from serial listeners mm-hmm. who have questions about how serial covered this. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I just want to talk about this as a piece of writing because... For me, unlike a lot of motions that I've read, it flowed really narratively. And I actually told our listeners, like, you should read this. Like, it is is a cogent narrative. And Laura, I'm wondering when you were reading this, if you felt the same way. You know, I did. Actually, when I was reading probably the first half of it, I'm like, this does not sound like any legal motion I have ever read. It does sound more like a narrative, more like a story. It was almost, I hate to say, some of it felt like it was almost written for the the general public instead of a legal audience. Yeah. Because it was just written in such a way that it was extremely easy to follow, but the narrative, like, story flow of it was also 
really not that sort of legal language that we're used to. I mean, you guys have read a lot of motions. I mean, they're dry. Yes. Every every sentence has citing some law. We didn't get into <laughs> citing the law until the end of this motion. It was well written, but I, I felt like a lot of this case now, because it has become so high profile and there is such interest, I feel like sometimes this case is almost tailored to the public instead of the court. I mean, I, I find it unusual that the motion was posted directly on the lawyer's website and maybe Adnan requested that. But at the same time, again, it's sort of playing into that public interest in this case. But that has worked so far. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think when yeah. I read that, I think like someone who's at a cocktail party with some prosecutors is way more likely to have read this motion. It was reprinted in the Baltimore Sun. It was in the New York Times, NPR linked mm-hmm. to it. Lay people are reading this and are more likely to have an opinion because of it, right? Yeah, it's way more pointed when you talk about the writing style. It is, Lord is correct, way more pointed than any sort of dry motion that is filled with footnotes and citations to other cases. Again, I'm just going to point to page one, third paragraph, second sentence. The state cell tower evidence, the, quote, crux of its case, was discredited by Judge Martin P. Welch's opinion ordering a new trial. Jay Wilds, the state's star witness, is now an admitted perjurer who has so many contacts with police, including an arrest for allegedly strangling and threatening to kill his girlfriend, that his credibility is practically non-existent. Like, that reads like like a speech that an advocate would give on the steps of the courthouse and not something that you would normally see in a non-emotional, just-the-facts, ma'am, kind of it reads like an opening statement it reads like an opening mm-hmm. statement and it's meant to send a strong punch people may start reading and by the time they get to page 30 something they're out but you read that and it's a big shocker right on the front page toby what do you think of this motion the way that it read uh, and the argument that it made did you think it was a persuasive piece of writing yeah i mean i i think laura and kevin are right in that and i, I guess i would take it even further which is that i think they want to have people read it to put more pressure on the state because they know that this is a, a case that a lot of people in the public are interested in, you know, and I think it's, it's sort of the, the nine 11 report playbook, which is you write it in a, in a more popular style in order to get people to read something that you think is important. Did you guys ever see the nine 11? I remember report? that it was published yeah. like as a book and that people were picking it up like at Barnes and Noble, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I, ha- I have right. a copy of it. Yeah. I mean, they wrote it like a piece of, you know, popular nonfiction for the most part so that it was not dry. I guess, uh, for that kind of report. And I think it's the same thing here is you want to get as many eyes on it as possible because that will increase the pressure on the state. And so in that way, I thought it was pretty effective. You know, I think 80% of it or something wasn't new for anybody who's been following the case, I think. The stuff about Jay was kind of interesting. There's, I think, a couple of domestic violence things, which might be germane. You know, the fact that the guy smokes a lot of weed, I don't see what the deal with that is. I, I don't know what they're trying to get with that. You know, one of the things that they really fleshed out here was what happened with Bale the first time, which was that he was 17 when he was arrested. And then there was this paperwork mistake which said he was 18. Right. So that was really on the state that they made him a capital murderer on paper. When he couldn't have been. If when he were couldn't saying, yeah. have been a capital murderer. And they also made, you know, so they made that error. And then on top of it, there was layered this very, very pronounced layer of xenophobia, which was part of the state's case 
to prevent right. him from getting bail. Now, Toby, I'd love your reaction to that because Sarah did talk about that in the podcast somewhat. You know, the investigator right. that they hired to sort of, you know, look into and the one who came up with this conclusion about Pakistani men are X, Y, and Z and, and so forth. And how does that sound to you now? I mean, do you, do you feel differently about it, given some time and space from Serial, when you sort of read it as part of this larger piece of the puzzle that they're trying to put together in this motion? You know, it's hard to put yourself in sort of pre-2001 mode regarding U.S. views of the Muslim world, right? So it was interesting in that the stereotypes they had and the claim that they were able to make about there are a bunch of cases where Pakistani young men have murdered women who they felt had slighted them and then scooted off to Pakistan and escaped like the fact that that would be something that would be taken seriously as perhaps like kind of a cultural thing that would happen amongst Pakistani Americans does seem kind of jarring. And I don't know if it seems more jarring after 9-11 when people have sort of engaged a lot more with the cultures in that part of the world and, and not always necessarily drawing positive conclusions. Well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if they're more informed, but I, all I know is when I read this now, one of my only critiques of Serial Season 1. Well, I have, I have two big critiques of Serial Season 1, but one of them is that Sarah did sort of brush off the racial elements of this. When Deirdre Enright especially brought them up to her, she was very doubtful that they existed. An investigator was hired sort of for the purpose of creating this narrative. And then this idea that like Adnan had once told somebody that he had this uncle who could take care of things... It was, to me, just like it was total and complete bullshit that was counter to what everyone else's experience was of this kid. And you sort of look at it in the context of the state also having made this mistake, saying he was 18 and when he was 17, and then nobody working to correct it when it was pointed out to them. Like, wouldn't that just on the face of it prove sort of incompetent counsel if they don't even get that? Like, they're allowing you to go up on a capital murder charge when you're not old enough? Toby, it was different counsel at the time, I believe. But and he didn't end up going up on the capital murder charge. Yeah. That, that, that part of it was corrected, but not the part where he was held without bail. I think the, oh, the implication okay. was that All the right. capital murder charge sort of colored how the bail proceeding went. That's right. And then you had like the giant amount of people in the community who turned out to support him. Which was and a, the which state would have been flipped a, that and said that, oh, well, look, this this doesn't show that he has support. This shows he has a network to get out of Dodge. Right. right. 80 right. people show up to support him, and that's turned into, obviously, they're all going to help him escape to Pakistan. I mean, it really, on its face, I find it shocking. I mean, I'm not surprised. I think this happens a lot of places, but I do think that it, it's different now. I'd say we have more issues with race now on, on, their, on our face than we did in 1999, but we also have more of an understanding of what racism looks like. And that's actually what it looks like to me. Now, Laura, I have a technical question for you from a listener. Okay. This is from Diane from, quote, Southern Illinois. They apparently believe themselves to be their own sovereign state in Southern Illinois, <laughs> which, by the way, she did say in her email. Her question is, how the heck uh, were Jay and his attorney able to tell the court that he had no prior criminal history during his drug arrest after Adnan's conviction? Mr. Wilds did cop to accessory after the fact in a Nod's case. Did he not? She writes. <laughs> and by the way, she specified that we shouldn't have a Christina Gutierrez inflection in there. What? Do the courts really just take folks at their word when they say they have no criminal history? Do you know an answer to that, Laura? Not any courts that I have worked with. <laughs> uh, 
So I, I guess I'm confused on the timeline. So at what point did Jay tell the court he had no criminal history? Is this when he was testifying for Adnan? This was after case? Adnan's conviction in another case. He said he had no criminal history. This is another piece of evidence that Justin Brown lays out to impeach him, basically, to show that he's in, that he's dishonest in court. He has a history of yeah. being dishonest in court. Can you just lie and they'll take you at your word? Or I mean, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I can tell you that anytime I had a witness, if it was like an unfriendly witness, I would go to like every court in our area. And, you know, I would run checks on people to find out if they had anything on their record. If it was a friendly witness, I would say, hey, don't mean to be a dick, but do you have anything on your record? I just kind of <laughs> need to know. Yeah. You Who know, hello me? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So and that was something that if the prosecutor hadn't run the record on the witnesses, we would present to them. So I'm surprised that didn't get caught. But at the same time, Baltimore is a lot busier than New Hampshire. So they may not have time to do that. But it doesn't take a lot for the police to punch it into their fancy little computer. It's a lot faster than when you're working for the defense and have to do all the legwork to get that information. It's kind of right there at the tip of their fingertips. So I can answer a quick question from Angela from Syracuse uh, in her email. Nice, Syracuse. (laughs) In an email, one of the things that she asks is Jay's arrest history, the additional bombshell that Colin Miller alluded to a while back. Uh, The answer is no. I heard that from the horse's mouth. I was on a taping for um, the Undisclosed Addendum this week. I'm going to be on that episode. And John Cryer asked Colin, is this the bombshell? And Colin was like, nope. Bombshell still out there? Bombshell is still out there. So the answer is no. But I I do want to move on to, I think, what is the most topical part of this, the thing that we're most qualified to discuss. Sarah Koenig has gotten a lot of flack from people who continue to follow the case for things that she did not include in Serial. And this motion has brought that to bear again with people saying that she clearly must have known about Jay's criminal history. You know, she made the editorial choice to not use his last name in the podcast for one. True. But she clearly knew about, you know, his criminal history after a non-science conviction, yet she excluded it from the podcast. And we have a question from a listener, Stacy, and she put it this way. This was one of about a dozen emails we got uh, like this, but I'm just going to use Stacy's here. I thought the most interesting new information in the document was Jay's criminal life since 1999. Rabia says Sarah knew the information but chose not to disclose it. I'm curious whether there is a reason for this. And if not, what is your take on the journalistic ethics of leaving out the part of the story if, in fact, Sarah Koenig knew about it? I'm going to start with you, Kevin, on that. It's a tough one. First, let's let's start from the assumption that they ran this by legal and legal didn't have a problem with it mm-hmm. because legal could have had a problem with it and said you can't use it. You mean Reasons like, of getting sued or whatever. You mean if this American Life has a legal team that they consult? Oh, sure. They do. Which they do. Because they do, by the yeah. way, at my public radio station has a legal team that we consult. Most journalistic outlets have a legal team that they consult. Syria was very thoroughly vetted, especially if you're going to maybe make the implication that somebody else committed a murder. And when you're talking, especially when you're talking about Jay, where he is cast as the unreliable eyewitness, you're really walking a fine line on where you are. And I know we've had lots of discussions and differing viewpoints from different experts about like what's straight up libel and what's straight up defamation and, and, and where you want to go. And I'm like, yeah, you can shoot somebody who walks into your house, but do you really want to do that? So like the conservative approach is usually how most news organizations are going to go. So let's just start from the assumption that legal said they didn't have a problem with it and she could use it if she wanted to. Is it part of the story? Is it part of the story? It's a good question. I, I want to come to her defense, but I'm 
I'm not sure that I completely can. And people get like, you know, on every detail about like she goes to these things and people are like, what about the time cards? You know, why don't you do that? You know, and she's like, you can see her roll her eyes. Like there's so many details and you have to choose as a journalist to sift through what is important and what really isn't. Is Jay's life after Anand's case relevant? I kind of think it is, but... I don't know. I don't know. I'm really torn it's on okay this. It's okay to not know. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I want to defend Sarah on this because this was, if she knew this, or she did know this, I guess, it, it was a judgment call. And they chose, they, they specifically chose not to include it, instead including other things that were about, okay, this is what was happening at the time as opposed to what happened years later. Right. Look, if Adnan, hypothetically, if Adnan had gotten into a fight while in prison and stabbed a guy, would that make it more likely that he killed Hay? Maybe. Maybe. Do, but do, it's, do you it's think perception. she would have included it because she included that he didn't? <laughs> yeah, but, you, you know, I don't know. Toby, what do you think? Are you confounded by this or do you have an opinion as to whether or not Sarah Koenig, assuming she knew something about Jay's criminal history, should have included it in serial? Yes or no? I, I don't think necessarily. I mean, I think she was trying to tell a story about something that happened and she told that story and where she wants to end the scope of it. I, I can see why people would want her to bring it up. But unless I'm forgetting stuff, she doesn't go into much of the later life of anybody. So I think sticking to the events that took place in 1999, yeah, just as, just from a storytelling point of view, which I think is what she was trying to do, you could make the case that that wouldn't have necessarily been helpful. You know, when she's making this, does she realize the sort of cultural impact it's going to have and how many people are going to be interested and how it's going to go from being like an interesting story into to this day sort of ongoing debate about, you know, whether he's guilty or innocent or things like that. So in some ways, I think the post podcast stuff has kind of taken on a life of its own. And if that hadn't happened and this came out, would you still be making the same critique? That's a long way of saying I think it's fine. I don't think it's necessarily unethical, but I could see where, especially if you were sort of a Adnan is innocent supporter that you would have preferred to have it in. What do you think, Laura? You know, I think that if this was a podcast told in the vein of In the Dark, this would have been in there. Now, looking back at Serial, listening to some of the different approaches to podcasts we've seen lately where the storyteller is a little bit more direct and blunt about things that have happened. But I don't think that's Sarah's style. Sarah's style was more storytelling and more reflective and more trying to sort of, you know, well, let us come to our own conclusions. So I think, you know, I, I would have liked to have this information in there. I think it would have shed more light on Jay as a character, but at the same time, it's pretty prejudicial information. And if her objective was to tell the story basically at the time that the crime happened, none of these other incidents had happened with Jay. So, you know, I, I would have liked to see it in there. I can understand why she left it out. I, I do, though, think that if this was a different podcast told in a different way, that this would have been included. I don't think it should have been included. I'm glad it wasn't included. I don't think it would have been ethical to include it. Why is that? Because I don't think that what Jay said in 1999 has anything to do 
with what he did or maybe didn't do in 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. It wasn't the story she was telling, A. B, I don't know, and I think it's unclear in there. You know, I know obviously some of those things are a matter of public record, but was he convicted of them? It's unclear. But there was also a reason why she made an editorial choice not to use his last name. Yeah. And I think it was because what the story was about was that there was an unreliable witness who was not cooperating with her and giving an interview to the podcast. So to put his alleged criminal history out there as fair game when she couldn't corroborate and get his side of the story, to me, that is problematic. And by the way, as you know, I work with the undisclosed team. So like, I'm very, very comfortable with the advocacy for Adnan Syed. And I'm very comfortable that what Rabia might say is fair game for her in a way that it's not fair game for Sarah Canning. So I'm not saying it's not okay for Rabia to put this out there. I know that Rabia of anybody would probably wanted this to be out there, you know, from day one. And that's her right, because she's an advocate for Adnan Syed. But as a journalist, one of the things that questions that we have asked ourselves over and over again when we listen to these podcasts are, so what if this guy who is innocent of this murder did X, Y, or Z? So what if this guy poured oil on a cat and burned it alive? Bad so, acts, previous bad acts. So what? Does it mean that they're guilty of something more nefarious? You know, Jay was a kid when Adnan was a kid, and she was looking at them when they were kids. He turned into an adult who allegedly did some bad stuff, right? Right. Let's go back to now to 1999, Jay. So what? He was not like a girlfriend abuser. I mean, we don't know that. We don't know. And I don't think Sarah could have known that. If she had had Stephanie or some other person from that era tell her a story about Jay from that time and she was able to corroborate it and get it on tape, totally fair game. I think to put that in, in that context, was, would be unethical. I don't think it would be cool. I don't think my editor would let me do it where I work. Well, let me ask you a question. Sure. Again, let's just be clear, like, what your role on Undisclosed is. is you're a technical engineer. Yes. You're, you're not writing any of the copy. I do audio copy. production. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's that. And, and for occasionally, a long time- occasionally I give advice about... I would move this piece of audio right. here because it makes it for a better narrative. But okay, just just so we're clear, you're not doing any an investigation. You're not writing any of the content. Nope. Sometimes you guessed on addendum, but that, that that's uh, that's completely I, I give different. my opinion, okay. which doesn't always align with theirs. Okay, and again, we we should point out that the Jay's arrest record has been out on the internet and Reddit and stuff for a long time because people have not everybody knows it, but if you're if you're down in the weeds, you've heard it. Do you know why, Robbie knew this, do you know why Undisclosed in it put this out there? I do. Are you in a position where you could say that? Yeah, yeah, I asked if I could answer okay. that question. Because I, I was curious myself, honestly. It was a question yeah. that I had as soon as I read this. But I did ask Rabia why you guys never did an episode about this, because clearly you wanted it to be out there. And she said, you know, as a team, they decided to not include it. The team decided to stick with it in the timeline of the case and the trial. So, um, yeah, they, But okay. they decided that it's a team. But I think you can and probably guess. And if they guess, are advocates yes. and they're willing to go a step beyond, right. then I don't think you can fault Sarah Koenig for being cautious and having the same view of that information if the undisclosed team decided that as a team, it also came to the same conclusion. I completely agree with and you. that, and that there is a time and place for this to be revealed, and this is it. Right. Yeah. No. See. So. So my complaint is funny because we talked about serial season one. What like. 
two years ago when we were first started yeah, this when podcast. It came out. Yeah, yeah. We're actually almost at our two year anniversary, as Laura pointed out, right, Laura? Yes, we're coming up on it. Yeah, and, and you know, we all sort of waxed about it because it was new. We hadn't heard anything about it before. And yes, now we have hindsight is twenty twenty. And I do think it would be a fun experiment for us to go back and listen to those early episodes and talk about them. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It could be no. a fun experiment. Anyway. We're all gathered around the studio at the University of New Hampshire, sharing I, microphones. So, yeah. So I am I am telling you like I actually one hundred percent defend the journalistically ethical choice to not include that information in the serial podcast. However, what I do now have a problem with that I didn't necessarily have a problem with back then was her skirting the racial issues and openly saying she didn't know and didn't necessarily believe that there were racial issues. Because to me, when I look at it, when you well, read the documents that, by the way, she had access to, they're on their face racist, some of the documents now, in this case. No, but you're drawing, those are opinions. Those are not facts. No. These are facts on this paper, these arrest what records. The, that report was in the file, and mm-hmm. that report is a racist report. I, I'm not going to say that it's not racist. Okay. I'm only going to say that that is an opinion okay. and it's not a legal fact. Okay, number two. Yeah. My other issue is that she did not provide the broader context of what was going on with the Baltimore Police Department in this period of time that some of the very investigators involved in this case have later been discredited and shown to have bad investigations and have their cases, you know, overturned and thrown out, that there was a context there. And Sarah Koenig was a reporter in Baltimore, and I know she wasn't like a police reporter, but I do think now that in hindsight, I'm not faulting her, you know, I would, I didn't falter then, but I just think now that in the context of now listening to podcasts like In the Dark, that is the missing piece of Serial Season 1. The episode that took place inside the Baltimore Police Department that showed how they work cases, how they solve cases, how they interrogate people in 1999 and showed the flaws in that part of the system. I agree with you, but I also think, you know, holding up sort of a, a groundbreaker against sort of the mature followers, they're always going to, the, the better spinoffs are going to innovate and find the things that they were missing. So I think, you know, at the time, Serial was just seemed kind of revelatory in the way it was telling a story. So that to me seems like enough of an innovation. And I'm, you know, trust me, all this social justice stuff is totally what I find most interesting. But drink. Yeah. Drink a lot. Um, (laughs) Again, looking back at Serial, what was innovative was the storytelling and that my sense is that without having the context of later podcasts, that stuff may not have seemed, it probably seemed like germane, but it probably seemed as though it would not help with the narrative momentum, which was always, is he guilty or innocent? Right. And looking at it from different ways. And then I think bringing in the context of the Baltimore police You know, it's interesting. And I think for if you're doing a complete journalistic picture of it, it's probably necessary. But in terms of her storytelling innovations, it it may have been hard to figure out how you can keep the narrative momentum going if you spend much time on that. That's just a thought. Right. Now, Laura, I have one quick question for you, because I think that and I'm going to come to Sarah's defense now. uh, I think that people give her a lot of flack as if she's still supposed to be covering the story like she was when she was reporting Serial. There's sort of a sense of like, why isn't she talking about the new revelation about X, Y, or Z? As someone who's written true crime books, 
Can you get on board with me saying that there is a time as a reporter where you are allowed to let a story go and no longer be the, the main voice <laughs> telling that story? Or did you agree with that or not? Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I can tell you that um, there's a story that you guys wrote about. And I, I have had people that continue to call me. I've had people get my home phone number. And I'm like, listen, I am all done with Seth Bader. Yeah, Somebody yeah. else can cover it. So yeah, I, I think there's a certain point where you pass the baton to somebody else. You didn't like um, give them our number when you say pass the baton though, right? Uh, no, I didn't. No, right, no. Yeah, I yeah. gave them the Seacoast Media Group uh, phone <laughs> number. But now, but now imagine for a second that you had become famous, like really famous beyond your little newspaper sphere because yeah. you had been reporting that story. So then now you were doing paid gigs around the country talking about that storytelling process. Or you created a movement. You created a movement. That I think puts Sarah like in a tough spot because she's not reporting this anymore, really. I mean, she's not continuing to dig in and do research, yet she is the face and voice of the case for most people who listen to Serial who did not get into the, you know, undisclosed and Reddit rabbit hole, like she is the person. And so they're angry, you know, that the people who are into it are angry that she's not keeping up. But Laura, what you're saying is you get it because you've been in that in that same position. Yeah, no, I get it. But it's definitely a different situation. I mean, it's obviously on a, a, you know, very large scale with what she's doing. And, you know, in a certain way, she could certainly continue to ride the serial wave and continue to report on serial and continue to have listeners. So there is that. But, you know, she's made a decision not to do that for whatever reason, because she's moved on to other stories and hopefully season three at some point coming along soon. I can see moving away from it when you've you definitely maxed out on a certain story and you finished a project. But in this case where there is still so much interest, I, you know, I can also see you may be missing an opportunity in some regard because you have these people that want this information. One point is that I mean, I think she has said that in so many words that she is sort of emotionally done with this case that she put a lot of herself into it. And I've been there. I know what she means. She's not being unkind to Anon. I mean, who puts one year of their professional life into a single story? That is an awful lot to ask from somebody. And when when the reporting is done, and even though there's still some things going on, there's only so much that you can do as a journalist. She's not going to try to make a, a career out of doing every Adnan Syed update. She shouldn't do that. Adnan has his own attorneys. They're the ones that are going to either get him out of jail or whatever. Sarah Koenig is not going to do that. There are advocates like Robbie and whomever who will carry the torch. There are other journalists now. Other journalists who will take this or that. Sarah doesn't owe anybody anything. Who does she owe this to? You, Rebecca? You, Laura? You, Toby? You, Lieutenant Weinberg, did you order the code red on Santiago? <laughs> All right. That was a very fun reference. But, but yeah, but, but she doesn't she doesn't need to do anything more. And it, it was funny, though, that she did do the from the hotel closet dispatches right. on the PCR. That weren't that and substantive. Then, yeah. And then didn't do anything else beyond that. But she's not coming back. OK, come back, Shane. It's not happening. <laughs> but I do think that it bothers fans because they do see her talking about the case. They publicly. see her as the face of the case. Right. But she is not. She is not. Right. She's the face of the yeah. podcast serial. Exactly. And she, she is the face exactly. of the case. And she's the face of the story as she told it for that 12 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't. I think maybe they're looking for that. Her talking about it somehow validates new facts or new things. And it's just she just 
that's not what she is going to do. All right. Well, I just have one quick question about the motion for each of you. Laura, do you think the motion was effective? Do you think that Adnan Syed will get bail or do you think that it will serve some other purpose for him? Boy, I don't know. I mean, it's it's tough to say. You know, he is, if the state moves forward, going to be facing murder charges again. And I can't say I've ever worked on a murder case where somebody got bail. And if the bail was set, it was extremely high and they couldn't post bail. So I don't know how things are going to work in Maryland. I do think, you know, the argument that this was laying out the case and kind of lobbying, um, you know, kind of the volley towards the prosecution to show them the strength of the case. The prosecution knows all this information already. If they didn't, they were living in a hole because everybody has been talking about this. The undisclosed people have been talking about this. This isn't new information to them. They've probably already done their due diligence. So I'll be curious to see what happens because I I think it is rare to see somebody facing a murder charge get out on bail, but it could happen. What do you think, Toby? You know, I, I just don't have enough experience with this stuff to really know. I guess I'd be somewhat surprised if they let him out, but that's just based on nothing. What about you, Kevin? Do you think a non-side will get bail or that this motion will serve some other purpose? It's, uh, it's possible. I'd, I'd give it more than a 50% chance. Laura's right that even you know, in any homicide case, that bail tends to be pretty high if it granted at all. Which she could probably pay at this point, given the money that's been raised. Yeah, the, the, the people would, you know, would come and do a Kickstarter or whatever and make sure that he has money to make bail. I think a lot of it's going to depend on what how the state will respond. But, you know, I think they've laid out a very strong case forcefully. And I think that there's a, you know, a decent chance that he'd be granted bail and he'd be able to come home. And when he comes home, you might want to get him a gift from a place like (laughs) thegromit.com. You might want to welcome home Anand Syed with a, a wristband headphone set. Really? Yeah, headphones in a in like a wristband. So he could finally listen to Serial? So he could finally listen to Serial. <laughs> and Crime Writers On? And Yes. <laughs> most importantly, Crime Writers On. Look, we're getting to the holiday season and you can walk around a big box store and try to find stuff and go, oh, what, what, what am I going to find Uncle Tony? And, or Toby Ball. We're going to buy Toby, Toby Ball. Ball. Who knows how to buy for Toby Ball? I'm tough to buy for. Well, that's why the Gromit is around. It's an online shop where you you will discover innovative products from gifts from small businesses. They go out to essentially all the boutique stores and all of the cottage industries that are out there, and they find like really cool stuff, like the Sleep Dot. What's that? Imagine like a little thing about the size of like a campaign button. You stick it on your pillow, and it like monitors your sleep patterns and how much you're, you're doing sleeping. It's a really cool uh, device. It's just one of the neat things you'll find there, like the no-spill nightlight cup. Well, that sounds good for Toby. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> imagine like a plastic cup that like kind of lights up like very softly at, at night. It's kind of like a nightlight, and, and you can go for that glass of water and not spill it all over your face. I got one that I might be getting you, Rebecca. All right, I'm ready. It's the Frywall Splatter Guard. So, you know, like those cones that you see like a, like a dog would wear if coming from the vet? Yeah, the cone of shame. Yeah, imagine putting one of those like oh, like around the rim of your frying pan <laughs> so you don't get that splatter. Because we have cook with, with olive oil and we have splatter every night after you cook. Yeah, I like that. But I actually have a gift for you, too, that I'm looking at the grommet right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the belly bump ball. What the hell? <laughs> It is basically a like giant inflatable raspberry that you put around your whole body, and the game is you just like mash into other people. Oh, it's like it's, it's like, like the sumo bump- wrestler kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, like yeah. Human bumper cars. Well, it'd be great for a picnic. 
<laughs> a picnic. A picnic. But look, everything, all these gifts are delightful. And it, it's not just these kinds of things. They also have clothes and sweaters and neckties and all sorts of different belts. It's a really wonderful website that you should browse because you will see things and say, oh, I would really love to give that to mom or dad. Or the kid. There's tons of cool kid stuff on here. You're absolutely right. And every weekday, they introduce a new product. So on the grommet, there is something for everyone, especially those people who are hard to buy for. This holiday season, give your gifts some thought. Visit thegrommet.com slash crimewriters, and you'll receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. That's the grommet, and grommet is spelled G-R-O-M-M-E-T, two M's, one T, dot com slash crimewriters, and receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. And you know what you could do? There's a button that says, surprise me. Yeah. It's like, it's like the, I'm feeling lucky on lo- on Google. Nice. Takes you to some product that you never would have thought of. Thegrommet.com slash crime. Crime writers. Slash crime writers? Crime writers. Yeah, okay, you got it. I got to say, I know this ad is over, but I'm looking at the game section on the Grommet. There's so many things here for Toby. Ooh. Really? Yes. There's the um, Flickin' Chicken Rubber Chicken Target that. Game. Yes. Flickin' Chicken. <laughs> There's so many cool like games. There's the uh, Nucci Golf Interchangeable Putting Set. Nucci? There's a cool, like obscure-looking game here that you would like Toby called Juby. It's D-J-U-B-I. Slingshot Catch Game. That, that's not obscure at all. No, yeah. There's oh. the brew bag, which is a beanbag lawn game. There's uh, lots of stuff. I think Toby's obscure sports bug. All these cool little drones that you can fly. This is a really cool website. I love it. Yeah, yeah. and I talked to, uh, for a while to the people there, Charlie and... Uh, Gromit. Jen, and Gromit. <laughs> Wallace. Wallace. <laughs> yeah. Like the, I mean, they have people that like, just go out. And they're, they're, like, they're like hunters that will go out and find like really neat stuff. And so that's why... And then e- kill it? <laughs> no, they don't kill it. They, but like King Kong, they do. I think they're more like they, gatherers. They bring it back alive. Yeah. And just for us. Thegrommet.com slash crime, crime writers. writers. Thegrommet.com slash crime writers. Crime writers. All right. Now we're going to talk for just a few minutes about a podcast I recommended we check out when we spoke last week. It's called Offshore. It's from Honolulu Civil Beat and PRX. If you haven't listened to it yet, never fear. This will be a very spoiler-free and pretty quick discussion. You can check out the two episodes that have dropped so far of Offshore either before or after you listen to our conversation. Offshore is planned as a multi-season podcast. It will unpack true stories that shed light on a part of the country most of us don't know a whole lot about. That's Hawaii. The first season is centered on a pair of true crime stories. So far, we've heard about one of those. So before we get into our short conversation about it, let's just get the perspective of someone with a little bit of insight into the podcast. I'm Jessica Terrell. I'm a reporter at Honolulu Civil Beat, and I'm also the voice and reporter for the new series Offshore. For our listeners who may not have checked it out yet, can you just give us a synopsis of what it's about and what the mission of the podcast is? Yeah. So the first season of the podcast is about two killings of Native Hawaiian men in Hawaii, one in 1932 and the other in 2011. 2011, a off-duty federal agent from the mainland comes to Hawaii for a big diplomatic summit, goes out with some friends, goes to a McDonald's late at night sees a situation where he thinks maybe there's going to be a fight that's going to happen, tries to intervene, gets into a fight with the guy, pulls out a gun, shoots him. So it's basically the 2011 story. And 1932, we haven't gotten that in the podcast yet, so we'll only tease to it a little bit. But it's a a pretty infamous story here in Hawaii about a 
group of men who were wrongfully accused of rape and the husband of the woman who had accused them of rape basically kidnapped one of the men and murdered him in 1932. And what happens from there is really what people are continue to be outraged about today, but that that man was a Navy officer. So still a different part of the federal government, but still representative to people here of, of the federal government. So you moved to Hawaii for this job at Civil Beat, right? I did, and which was not a podcasting job at the time at all. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you, you're relatively new to the islands. You've been there, what, about 18 months? Yeah, something like that now, 19 months maybe. Okay, and one of the things that you do in the podcast is you do lay out, I think through a really effective interview that you do with a guy who's a club DJ there, you, you sort of lay out the very complicated relationship between you know three groups of people on the islands. You have like the native Hawaiian Islanders, you have the military uh, people, and then you also just have the off-Islanders who live there, you know, like the Howleys, as I guess they're called. And you say, remember that term because it's important. One of my big questions for you is I'm wondering why you think you're the right person to tell the story. Do you think it benefits the story that you are not from there? I think that's a that's a really tough and good question. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, especially because we're talking so much about race and I'm white. So it's something that we'll also tackle, I think, in other episodes, kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit and talking about what that's meant for reporting. But I think the best analogy that I've been able to come up with for myself is, I guess, how I would feel right now about like maybe a man doing a podcast about sexual harassment. If it's done the wrong way, it could be really offensive. It could be really bad if he's trying to speak for women. On the other hand, there's a certain amount of like thinking through the process and and thinking about, you know, maybe his own position um, in the sort of broader environment that we're dealing with right now that could bring some insight and sort of help bring listeners along. And so that's kind of what I'm hoping I'll do here, um, that being someone who's kind of new to the island, who's asking questions that may seem pretty obvious to someone who's been here for a long time, but wouldn't be obvious to a listener, and then talking about race and thinking about it and thinking about, you know, what happens when white people come to Hawaii and don't really understand the dynamics that I'll sort of have a little bit of a journey that uh, listeners can follow along with in a way that will still be meaningful and hopefully not incorrect or uh, offensive. Well, one of the things that I love that you've done in the podcast is you really have taken us through a couple of timelines. I mean, you took us through the timeline of Christopher Didi's day and Colin Eldert's day on the day that Colin Eldert's was killed. And then you took us through sort of a broader timeline of the backstory of both of their lives, you know, who they were when they both ended up at this one moment that they would be linked by forever, that three-minute fight that they got into that led to Colin Eldert's death. You talked a little bit about where Colin Eldert's is from and the development of that community into a tourist community and how that really shifted the course of his life and the lives of other young people. Is that something that is a, a broader topic of conversation in Hawaii? Yeah, I think there's always conversations going on here about development and about whether or not there's enough space being left for the people who are from Hawaii to live. It's, a, I think, a, a pretty constant issue on lots of the islands and one that we also tackle here in the islands with a lot of uh, homelessness. I mean, there are surprising number of people who are homeless and a lot of them are Native Hawaiians on land that once belonged to their people. So, yeah, it's, I think it's definitely a 
an ongoing issue in lots of places. And you'll drive up the coast and you'll see signs like keep country country, you know, and that's a response to the idea that more development is coming into these areas and and they really don't want it. A lot of people don't want it. One of the things I really like about your podcast is that you aren't doing, I think, what a lot of other podcasts are doing, I think lesser podcasts are doing, where they have a you know wronged victim or a wronged party. And then really, I don't think making a sincere attempt to flesh out both sides of the story, it seems like you're really committed to not having Christopher Didi be a caricature of a shooter. Now, you don't have access to Christopher Didi because his case is pending. How challenging has it been for you to try to bring balance to both sides of this story? It's it's been pretty tough just because it's one of those issues where it's I mean, Christopher Didi is potentially facing a third trial here. So there's a lot of sensitivity. It's recent enough of a death that people on both sides don't really want to talk about it, but not so recent that we have access to like attending the trials or getting all the audio that we'd want. So I'd say it's definitely an ongoing challenge. And and part of that is just trying to look for any alternative way that we can to sort of think about what it's like to be put in that position from either side. So uh, later on in the series, you know, we're going to talk to a police officer who shot and killed someone so that they can explain to us what that feels like, what that experience is from the other side. So we've we've had to do a lot of outside of the box thinking about how to tell that balance. But I mean, ultimately, I think we want this podcast to do and, and future seasons of the podcast is to really think about these sort of broader social issues because crimes can really like say a lot about society, right? Like the crime itself, but also how it's prosecuted and how people react and just painting a one dimensional portrait of a shooter or a victim, you know, like villain or hero or it, it's not going to help us think about the broader issues or or I feel empathy for people in a way that will maybe help in any way as a society. I have a question actually about your origin story. I'm going to just diverge for one second because I was reading your bio. For a period of time, you lived on a raft built out of junk in Massachusetts. (laughs) And uh, that was like a formative part of your childhood. And I was reading this part of your bio and I was thinking this was probably the greatest college essay that was ever written by anybody um, to talk about this experience. You actually have sort of your own journey and your own origin story that's really fascinating. Can you just like tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So briefly, I grew up hating reporters, actually, which is ironic then that I ended up becoming one. I was raised in a family, traveling family band, and we built rafts. We lived in cars and and boats and then eventually rafts that we built in New York City and sailed up the coast of Massachusetts. And my parents actually eventually sailed one of those rafts across the Atlantic Ocean. And so I kind of grew up a little bit of an outsider, raised sort of all over the country, which whether or not that helps at all in covering issues like race relations here is is a completely different question. But definitely, I think, gives me some different things to think about because I'm used to, you know, like living in Mexico as a kid where we'd go to places where people always wanted to touch your hair because they hadn't seen a blonde person in person before, you know, or uh, neighborhoods in New Orleans where we were the only white people, which Definitely in this idea of is it race that divides us or class and economics, which we're going to try and not go too much into a rabbit hole in this in this season. But when we're looking at this killing in the sort of broader context of all of these issues that people bring to both the jury box and maybe what they carried with them on the night of the incident itself, you know, these are things we're going to touch on a little bit. 
to what extent are you taking into consideration that, you know, President Obama, who's about to leave office, is from Hawaii? And I think his story is very much tied to many of the themes that you're talking about in this podcast. Yeah, well, this was a big part for us of why we started thinking about this in in the first place. And I think it's because this idea of Hawaii as, you know, the place that sort of nurtured President Obama as this kind of post-racial paradise where all of these groups kind of live together in this melting pot. And then the reality of that, which is not exactly that, there's a lot, there's a lot of different, very complicated racial dynamics here. And yet at the same time, there are some really positive things that come out of that. So it's it's much more complicated, but being able to to dive into that in a way, I think that's what we're trying to do. And and keeping in mind that, you know, this is yeah, the Obama story. And, you know, when I was doing research for this, I also found quotes from Martin Luther King and essays from Life magazine. I mean, this idea of Hawaii as this sort of like beautiful utopia melting pot is one that has been like very carefully cultivated for decades. One of the things that you said in an early moment in the podcast was you just described Hawaii as as weird, like it's just a lot weirder than people think it is. This case aside and some of the racial stuff aside, you know, I've never been Hawaii. I'm sure many of our listeners have never been, will never go. What are some of the other weird things about Hawaii that uh, you think the rest of us should know? You should come check out Hawaii, first of all. (laughs) Come visit. Don't let this podcast scare you away. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's... There's good weird just in adjusting to a place that has a very different culture. I mean, it does have a very different culture from other places on the mainland and island time and getting used to that. But it's also things like one of my first really big assignments here in Hawaii was spending two months in a homeless village 30 minutes outside of Honolulu, which is not something that you'd think about on the mainland or necessarily even see in a lot of places in the mainland the way that this sort of like self-sustaining homeless community in the woods right outside of, you know, the tourist areas. It's weird. <laughs> There's some weird dynamics. And I think you'll get a taste of that in episode three, where we really do talk about some of the racial dynamics and some of the sort of very strange things that you come across when you try to talk about this, like whether or not Kill Howley Day is something that's real. And and then a woman that I talked to and that you'll hear in episode three, who's talking about her kids going, her grandkids going to school. And apparently this year it was actually Kill Japanese Day in school. Oh, boy. Um, so some it's some weird things. But not to scare you off, there's so much that's wonderful and beautiful about Hawaii. And we're going to get to a lot of that. And a lot of that's what's also really great about the racial dynamics here. So, Well, I can't wait to hear the rest of the podcast. I am loving it. I'm loving your voice. I think that you have found what it is you're supposed to be doing as a reporter. And I'm a big fan. And I hope that any of our listeners who have not checked it out yet do so. They'll be as hooked as I am, I think, immediately. I can't thank you enough for talking to me about your podcast, Jessica. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much again to Jessica Terrell, the reporter and voice behind the podcast, Offshore. Now, I have a question for you, Toby, about something that's maybe missing from this podcast so far. Do you yeah. think people actually know the history of Hawaii and how it became part of the United States? Uh, I do doubt it. Do you know the history of Hawaii and how it became part of the United States? You know, I don't think I could go into great detail on it. You know, it's weird. Like, as far as there was an American empire, like, that's the evidence, I think, is Hawaii. You know, all these other sort of European empires let go of these sort of far-flung holdings that they had. You know, Britain got out of India and 
Portugal got out of all these places in Africa and stuff, but we just made Hawaii part of our country. It's weird. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, when they think of Alaska and Hawaii, they don't tend to think an awful lot about the hundreds of years of of natives, uh, native hundreds, habit, thousands, thousands of years of indigenous people who live there and their cultures. I'm sure Jessica will get into it, but just the thumbnail. And I had to look this up because I remember sort of like one paragraph in my social studies book in eighth grade about what Hawaii was like, the territory of the kingdom of Hawaii. Yeah, before and it the paragraph like, was probably like some like pleasant story about some deal that was made that benefited the native people. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, it was it was a kingdom and there was a king Kamehameha. It might have been the fourth or the fifth. Essentially, Europeans and American businessmen helped orchestrate a coup d'etat to get a provisional government and strip the monarchy of its power. And, you know, one thing led to another, and soon uh, the Marines are there, and there is annexation. And, you know, for 60 years, this was a U.S. territory. Strategic. Do you know the date that it was annexed? It became a state in 1959. Eisenhower signed it. So it was, I believe it was either Grover Cleveland or McKinley, one of those presidents, you know, there was sort of a back and forth about should it be a, a territory and should it be annexed? You know, and it there was, was the, marketed. It was marketed. And, and right. I mean, it may as well have been Panama. Right. You know, as, as far as like, oh, there's these natural resources of sugar and pineapple and these corporate interests. And the way they rewrote the Constitution, they called it the bayonet Constitution because it was under force. That, that disenfranchised Native Hawaiians and gave voting rights only to white landowners. Yeah, and there, but there was marketing also in the United States to corporations and to citizens about why this should be a state. Yeah, back in the 50s. Yeah, there was a lot of marketing. Yeah. There's marketing campaigns about, I mean, the, a lot of Hawaii's tourist destination stuff was wrapped into this story of like, this is a paradise, this is utopia, like, we want this to be part of our country. It's a very, very complicated and interesting and bad I story. think the only thing you have to know is that in 19, 19- 1993 that Congress and President Clinton signed a declaration acknowledging that the annexation of Hawaii was unlawful and apologizing for it. There's an article from a number of years ago in the New Yorker, I think it was called American Raj, you know, referring to uh, the British time in India, but was about how during that time, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, when there's a lot of American servicemen there, that mainland Americans, Caucasians, acted pretty much with impunity legally for quite a while. And that, and it sounds like they're going to get to that in this podcast. That's the history in which you know Hawaii now exists. That's the lens through which they also view stories like this, which I think is the point of the podcast, right? Now, right. Laura, Laura, one of the things that I really like about the story she's telling is that, um, and it's difficult, but she doesn't have access to Christopher Deedy. She doesn't have somebody speaking on his behalf, mm-hmm. but she really is trying to flesh out him as a character too. It's not just like you know the guy with a gun who shot the you know the person of color. Like she's really trying to make it a complete package. And show that there is a human being, you know, here and that it goes beyond or or perhaps that this is the lens. I mean, we don't know exactly where she's going to go, but there is this lens. But there's also like some human beings here. Do you think she's doing a good job of this, of of telling the story and, and trying to show that balance? I do, you know, because it could very easily be a story where, okay, his attorneys aren't going to talk. They said, come back in two years. And she leaves it at that. But, you know, we have a picture of him looking like Abercrombie and Fitch model. 
you know, he's from New England. We know about kind of how his life has played out up until that moment. So far, I mean, it's leaving me feeling like, you know, it's definitely not a black and white story. And you can see that there's a lot of room for different interpretations as to what happened leading up to the shooting. Now, Kevin, as a storytelling question for you, mm-hmm. we were talking the other day in the car about an episode of This American Life we were listening to that was like devastatingly sad where um, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a description, basically a video. The right. whole right. segment was description of a documentary film. And it, I think it was Miki Meek telling the story and it was about uh, this post-tsunami village in yeah, Japan yeah, and how would, people were connecting. They would go to a telephone booth that's and, and, uh, and pretend to call, pretend their, dead to call relatives. their dead relatives. Right. Sure, okay. And she was just describing the video. Right. And when I was like, that is a very hard thing to do. Yeah. I'm curious to know about what you think Jessica is doing here and whether or not you think it's effective. I think it is. I'll just tip my hand there. The video of this crime... That was... Yeah, I think I know where you're going. That was a series of still shots. And I think that was... That was the most effective part of the storytelling, and I think the still shots actually lent itself to the storytelling extremely well. It's like a literary device, right? It's well, it's it's like you're capturing instead of it being a flow of, and then this happened, and this happened. You are specifically and explicitly looking at at a tableau and a tableau and a tableau and describing it. And I think that was the best part of, of the two episodes that are out there. That writing was really good. And you know, I don't know what's going to happen because look, we've been in this position. The the reason that you can't get access to the attorneys and the defendant and what is because they're still they're still in legal peril. Right. And they, the reason they say come back in two years is once it's fully adjudicated by the state supreme court. Then you can do that. And that's how a lot, a lot of times we, we sit and we wait, and that's when we start writing the books. And when you do the ones where you don't have that, you, you have to get creative. What, what do you think of her use of his uh, outgoing voicemail message as the way to get just a snippet of him into the podcast? Yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's clever, I thought. Yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it has its it has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. But, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with it because what I think, think it's good. What do you think the weaknesses good. are? Well, I mean, I think the substitution of, like, the DJ at the club to sort of give the cultural background to fill stuff in when... You, you know, if you had your druthers, you would have more people connected to the case. I don't know. I just, I was kind of I like. I don't know. I liked that. I thought it was good color. I liked yeah. Doc Rock. Yeah. Wasn't I mean, his name Doc Rock? See, this is one of the things, and, and you know, we often say, and you heard me ask Jessica in our interview, like, she's white. Is she the right person to tell the story? There is a problem with diversity in journalism. There are reasons for that that we can get into another episode, why there are not enough people of color, especially in audio journalism. But one of the other problems with diversity in journalism is the voices we choose to use in stories. And, you know, I've been to a couple of trainings on this. Journalists tend to lead toward the expert on the matter to be the voice in the story, right? So, like, a traditional public radio story maybe that wasn't thinking this way would have the cultural minister of XYZ or some sort of official. Someone from the university. Yeah, well, some yeah. sort of professor. Like, Radio Lab would bring on a professor to explain the history and the culture or whatever. She didn't do that. She brought a guy who actually works in the place where people go. I th- I really actually liked that. I thought it was fresh, and I thought it brought a voice into the narrative that wouldn't usually be there. Toby, what did you think? I mean, you were the one sort of asking for a podcast with more of a diverse angle, with more light being shed on a lo- broader cultural issues. How do you think about how she's telling the story, and is it scratching that itch for you? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I did like that that piece with the DJ kind of describing the scene 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really looking forward to future episodes, especially going back in time to that to that earlier case and how they're going to relate. I she's she's at least set it up to be sort of checking off a lot of the boxes that I'm looking for. Did anybody else take a look at YouTube and see the video? No, no, it, it's there. Really? Yeah. The Christopher Didi the Helen McDonald's Hel- video? video. Yeah, yeah. So I, I I I watched it while I was listening to her describe it. So yeah, just go to YouTube and you can put in either one of their names, and that's what oh, comes wow. up is, is the video at, at the McDonald's. And it is it's choppy, and then there's some stuff that happens out of the frame, but you do see the whole thing. Doesn't that sort of tie to the story though? The fact that it's choppy and there's stuff happening out of the frame. That's also kind of like what this story is about. You know, the stuff that you the can, missing holes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's it's off to a very prom- promising start. And again, as Kevin mentioned before, there have been other things that have started off promisingly that haven't kind of followed through. But I'm optimistic in that I think she's teased enough stuff, which at least, you know, is the kind of thing I look forward to. And we got Toby's answer on this, Laura. Um, will you keep listening to Offshore after these couple of episodes that we heard for this podcast? Well, I will. I'm going to make a little confession here. I am um, one of my favorite TV shows of all time is Magnum P.I. Yeah. And I just haven't. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. It's on Netflix. Like, I want to be like Magnum. I want to be like the female Magnum. And I want to go live in the little house with Higgins in Hawaii. So I will keep listening because other than that, my only real knowledge of Hawaii was this really bad like reenactment place I went to in Fort Lauderdale called the Mai Kai. Um, <laughs> oh my God. A Hawaiian I, I don't know reenactment it, place? And- <laughs> it was so bad. It was so bad, but they had really strong drinks and that's all I remember. And that, by the way, was not when I was arrested. So, um, oh, oh, let's let's solve that mystery next week. Yeah, I want to keep our um, listeners. Te- I wanted to keep teasing that. Maybe people will. I know. Listeners, take your guess at what Laura was arrested for and tweet at us. <gasps> let's put out a little a Twitter survey. Yeah. What was Laura arrested for? Misdemeanor. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kevin, what do you think? Are you going to continue listening to Offshore? Yeah, I will. I will. Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, I think it has, you know, some some definite promise. All right. I think it's time to move on to my favorite part of this episode, a little something I like to call the Crime crime of the Week. This is local, guys, right in our hood. I know. In Portland, Maine, there is no law against dressing up as a tree. But it is illegal to block traffic as one. Earlier this week, 30-year-old Asher Woodworth draped himself in evergreen branches and sauntered into a busy intersection in downtown Portland. Braving afternoon traffic, he slowly crept through the crosswalk, his face and body obscured by layers of plush green boughs. When police arrived, officers slowly coaxed Woodworth out of the intersection and they let him off with a warning. But then he wandered right back onto the street right in front of them. So they had to arrest him. So was this an early Halloween costume, some sort of social experiment? At first, it wasn't clear, but there's been some late breaking news in this story. Okay, lay it on us. The Portland Press Herald reports that Woodworth, who studied dance and philosophy at Bennington College in Vermont, (laughs) has said this was performance art, that he is an advocate for, quote, slowness and quiet in his life. (laughs) And that he hoped to explore how the movement of people and cars through an urban space contrast with the slowness and magic of nature. If he's got to pay off student loans from Bennington, he's got to get a better job. (laughs) I didn't intend to create a spectacle or get arrested, he told the paper. I'm interested in asking, why can't you walk slowly in front of a car? Because it'll hurt? The other reason you can't is because it's a crime. It's It's an actual crime. Oh. 
So here's my question for you, panel. Laura Bricker, what is a better crime that you could commit dressed up as a tree? Oh, my goodness. I have to say, when I first saw this story, all I could think of was this restaurant that we have around here, Bugaboo Creek. Mm-hmm. And they have a talking tree in their entranceway that... Um, <laughs> used to frighten my son horribly when he was little. But, you know, if I could dress up like a tree, I don't think I would commit a crime. You know what I would love to do? I would love to sneak around and eavesdrop on people in my little tree suit. Ah. Yeah, that's not a bad trick to do when dressed up as a tree. What about you, Toby? Rather than holding up traffic in the streets of Portland, Maine, what is a better crime you would commit dressed up as a tree? I'm surprised you even have to ask me that question. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've talked so often about the timber taking. Yeah, I just... The ultimate disguise to take timber. Take timber. Take timber. It's funny because at one point I covered a crime. It was a bank robbery. In Manchester, New Hampshire. Where a guy like grabbed like a branch, like a a large branch that had like a lot of leaves on it and kind of like covered his face like a fan and held up a (laughs) bank. Dressed, dressed as a tree, and like a couple hours later, the I mean, the police had a pretty good view of who he was, and they knocked on the door and they arrested him, and he said. Yeah, I thought you'd be coming for me. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that was a pretty elaborate tree costume that guy had in Portland, Maine. So I'm thinking it would be good to dress up like that and do a sting operation against dog walkers. Huh. If you're curbing your dog. The people who aren't picking up after them. Yes. Oh. Let me tell you a story, people. When I was on the Parkway trustees in town, oh my goodness, Here no dogs allowed. I had to go down there and enforce that. Really? You had to enforce the no dogs allowed? Well, and my, and my husband would like grab me every time we were going through the park. We have this beautiful park on the river and there's no dogs allowed. And he'd be like, leave it. And I'd be like, I'm a trustee. There's no pooping dogs on the parkway. <laughs> don't they read the signs? And he'd be like, just keep driving. Just don't look. So that was my one and only venture into public service. Well, I have news for you guys. I actually know exactly what crime I would commit dressed up as a tree that would be like an excellent crime to commit dressed up as a tree. Being a peeping Tom on Keebler elves. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they wouldn't see it coming, right? They would not see it coming. (laughs) All right. We should probably end it on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet with you and perhaps follow up on your horrible enforcement of the no dogs rule, how can they find you on Twitter? (laughs) It's at Laura Bricker. And uh, thanks for all the cat pictures this week, people. (laughs) (laughs) And Toby Ball, if our listeners want to send you tips on being successful in full court basketball, how can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to tweet with you, how can they do that? They can't because I'm at the casino playing blackjack this weekend. (laughs) For my birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, baby. (laughs) Seriously, though, how can they tweet with you? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. You can reach us by email with your questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Want to get our newsletter or support the show by buying stuff on Amazon? You can get all that done at our website, crimewriterson.com. If you listen on iTunes, consider rating and reviewing the show. It really helps us out. And while you're there browsing for podcasts, check out our other show, These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. This week's episode is a great one. Also check out all the other podcasts in the Partners in Crime Media family, Deathcast and the Disappearance podcast. Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the studio built for two, only two, in an old cedar closet in our basement. 
On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. We had lunch with a listener today. Really? Oh my, where'd you guys go? I took her to the Barley House. She's really nice and she's very like into us on social media. She has been for a long time and she's a normal person. I do a little bit of uh, research before I agree to meet somebody. Yeah, I would too. Except for that one time when you met me. (laughs) There was that. There was that. Lesson learned. Now I'm stuck with you in a closet while you drink. (laughs) I know, it's bad. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gromit. TheGromit.com has unique items across a variety of categories, and every weekday they introduce a new product. On The Gromit, there's something for everyone, especially those people who are hard to buy for. This holiday season, give your gifts some thought. Visit thegromit.com slash crimewriters, and you will receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. That's thegromit.com slash crimewriters, and receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. Thegromit.com slash crimewriters. Walmart Plus members save on Meeting Up With Friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.